Hello, and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. We are back after way too long of a break, but we're so thrilled to be back here because we have so much to talk about. Oh my God. Oh, a lot has happened in the true crime world since we last spoke, and we can't wait to dig into it. But before we do that, we want to pick up on where we left off, which was a topic near and dear to our hearts. She's the manicurist. And if you want to go back there and listen to that episode, it's very recent history. But unfortunately, our girl Amanda, who we were rooting for, we hope is just happy and healthy and all good things moving forward. It seems she ran into a little bit of trouble the other night. And um, I think that the night that it happened was March 21st. And what happened was a very interesting sight to behold. And it was our dear Amanda out in the field, in the world, in In the field, (laughs) on the streets. Yeah, live on the street, boots on the ground. She was out there in her birthday suit and just walking around, sort of not really knowing which way was up, they think. And I do believe she was placed on a psychiatric hold of some sort after she was witnessed in this very concerning state. So that's just a sad piece of liberty. I really hope that she gets the help that she needs. I know. Because I just think, you know, I speak for both of us and for every single fan of Amanda's, which is any girl that grew up in the 90s, that she just gets the help she needs and goes on to live a wonderful and fulfilling life because she just is so deserving of it. She's such a cool girl, so talented, and just had everything going for her. So hopefully she just pulls it together and has support and is able to get everything back together and do what she wants to do with her life. Yeah. And it's sad too, because it seemed like, you know, kind of how we told the whole story, obviously covered the ups and downs, but it seemed like she had kind of gotten on a steady, the steady, you know, road or whatever for a little bit there was doing something that she was interested in, not, you know, doing anything fame wise. And, I don't know. We're kind of hoping, we were hoping that was going to be the solution there, but it just seems like, I mean, mental illness is a hard thing. So yeah, yeah, we just wish her the best. Yeah. It's so hard to compete with and to fight that mental illness when it's so insidious like that. And just wish her the best and hope that she makes another turnaround because this was not the liberty that we wanted to spill coming back. We were hoping it would be liberty. Amanda does an awesome manicure and is... Turns out is amazingly talented at manicures, just like she was at acting. And so this is a sad piece of news to share. Um, Also, in other news, I read Jeanette McCurdy's book. Oh, you did? I'm glad my mom died. It was so good. Uh, It lived up to it then. It lived up to the hype completely. And not only that, but Jeanette is a very talented writer. She really really expresses herself just so well and really is able to kind of transport the reader to exactly how she was thinking and feeling at the time when these things were happening to her. And it just really gives you the perspective that you need when you look at her life and just sort of wonder, oh like, my God. how did these things happen to this person? Why did things go the way that they did? It's it's a really interesting book. And it's very Mommy Dearest vibes, very Gypsy Rose. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, because this mom, oh, oh my, my goodness. God. She 
just had her claws in Jeanette. She gave her an eating disorder, pretty much. She, which I'm sure you and I both wish that our moms had <laughs> right. successfully given us eating disorders. But she, the, this mom just taught her how to restrict calories early on. She equated love with restricting and with acting and performing and Jeanette hated acting from the beginning she was never yeah, that's crazy yeah she never wanted to do it and it's just the sort of thing where it becomes such a big part of your life that if you don't really want to do it it's cruel to make somebody. oh that's so true so yeah but really a good read encourage everybody to read it and to tell us what they think it was oh my gosh just so interesting hilariously funny even though it's see that's good too yeah so you need that in there yeah you do especially with subject matter that's that twisted and exactly everything so that was really cool and good to see so it seems like she's on the path to healing I really really hope Amanda does the same because they were the two artists that we spotlighted last time we spoke yeah and we just wish the best for both of them Well, the topic for today is a little more grim, but we did have to go back to the true crime uh, genre here and wanted to cover the University of Idaho for students who were killed. The case obviously continues to kind of progress, but... Well, it's interesting to kind of do it now because I think at this point in time, we have all of the information that we likely will have for a little while, but... We're in a very interesting position because we won't actually see the trial until June. Right. So we're sort of in a stalemate right now. We've got a lot of information. We've heard a lot of research. We've seen a lot of different perspectives. And I think we're in a in a spot where we can now fully discuss this case and give our opinions without jumping the gun or going too soon. But we also have a little while for more to come out if that does happen um, or for us to change our opinions. So it's kind of good timing here Very true. In, in late March, early April to be covering this case. Yeah. And I'll say I haven't I'm not sure if they're going to be streaming this case like they did the Murdoch case. But if they if they do, I will be glued to it, of course. So, yeah, it should be interesting. A lot that's come out since has it's been a lot of rumors and unsubstantiated claims but I think what we're going to try to do is definitely go through what has been verified and if there is anything in here that you know is just kind of rumors or believed but not confirmed we will try to call that out too. Yeah so just to kick it off we want to set the scene for you here the background of this horrible gruesome crime We have four University of Idaho students who are at school in a town called Moscow, Idaho. And this is a tiny town. It's described as a safe town. A lot of people just left their doors open at night. They didn't lock anything because they felt super, super safe. There was nothing to worry about. And there hadn't been a homicide there in seven years. So we're talking about a tight-knit community People are just good, salt-of-the-earth folks, trust one another, and know one another well, and there's just no cause for concern. So we have three roommates involved in this murder. There was Kaylee Gonzalez, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Zana's boyfriend, Ethan Shapin. And these four folks just 
oh, they met a horrible fate. But the three females that I mentioned are the three roommates. And then the boyfriend, Ethan, was just there staying with his girlfriend. Which is also sad, too. It like, I don't, well, there's actually two of them in this that are kind of happenstance happened to be there. And I think that, I don't know, just makes you, it's like the people who, God, this is so grim, but like, we're running late on 9-11 or yes. something like that it's like ugh. wrong place wrong yes. time and ugh, just timing is everything it's and awful it's clear that that was ugh, this guy's timing was not good this night so Kaylee and Maddie grew up together and they had been best friends since sixth grade they completed all these different milestones together and even ended up going to college together they actually were much more like sisters than like friends and in claims by the family members they talk consistently about you know our two daughters and oh our you know maddie and kaylee they talk about them like they're a unit so along with these two best friends who were like sisters were ethan and zana as we discussed the boyfriend and girlfriend and these two had started dating in spring 2022 and they were inseparable ever since So the roommates lived in this house with two other roommates. So there were five girls total at the time living in the house. And the house was located in the Greek Row area of the town. And Greek life at the University of Idaho is a big, big deal. It's, you know, anyone who's anyone joins Greek life. Everybody is, finds their niche and finds their place in the different Greek organizations And so all three of the girls who met their demise that night were in sororities and Ethan, the boyfriend, was in a fraternity. So just to give you an idea of how involved these students were in Greek life and who they were, what made them tick. Yeah, and the house is almost like another character in this. If we were doing a back-in-the-day lovely... um literature class where we're interpreting you know looking for whatever the house is definitely its own character in all of this and true yeah it's it's definitely it's eerie it's creepy so it was located at 1122 king road and it was very close to campus and it had a really weird kind of unique setup and it looked like if you kind of looked at it that it had been added on to over the years and this created kind of a weird layout. It also looked like it was kind of built into the hill a little bit. So it's definitely strange. So it had three stories overall, six bedrooms, three baths, and it was kind of set up with two bedrooms and one bath on each level. So I mean, that's kind of a nice setup, at least, you know, split out the bedrooms a little bit, you only have to share a bathroom with your other roommate, like not too bad. Um, But it was known as a party house for years. And just to kind of give you idea, an idea of what the parties were like and how many people were kind of in and out of this house, because this definitely becomes a big kind of uh, plot line here. Several police body cam videos have come out since the murder uh, where police were called over and it was always, it seemed to be, for noise complaints. And on one of these calls, you can see that the police are knocking at the door. Some people come to the door and the homeowners, you know, they're asking, do you live here? Do you live here? The homeowners weren't even home at the time. And some of the people coming down and speaking with the police didn't even know who the house belonged to. They just kind of, you know, were like, oh, well, we were friends with we just kind of came over here, came (laughs) along with the crowd. But 
I don't know. It, it it does also, I mean, thinking of it in the context of college kids, I can see that happening a ton where you're just like, oh, you want to come with me to this party? Okay. Like, I don't know the who people. lives there? Or, yeah. Yeah. But I, shocking that the nobody who owned the house would be there. That to me is, is kind of crazy. Yeah. Next level. Yeah. Um, but it was a very walkable area and we'll see how close in proximity a lot of the Greek life locations were when we examine the victims' nights. But you could definitely see different, you know, party houses, fraternity, sorority houses um, from this house and lots of them around. Again, it's Greek row. So there there have been a couple, you know, 20, 20, 48 hours that have come out. And in one of them, in a 2020 interview, one of the friends said that it never was people at the house that weren't friends with Ethan or one of the roommates. So it does seem like it's kind of, you know, the same crowd going to these. Um, but it's still just is baffling to me to kind of have a party where, and again, you also have five roommates there that one of them wasn't there. It's just kind of crazy to me. Yeah, that's definitely, it's next level party house. Definitely people just milling in and out. We watched a lot of the footage from when the police officers were called over to the house for noise complaints and the police it seemed like were there like every other night yeah there just were constant parties going on at this house people were milling in and out and I think it was super rare that we even see any of the girls who lived in the house as part of who the police came across at the house so it just goes to show you it was just this sort of transient environment like another stop on the party train and that's sort of like the vibe we were working with here yeah no I think that definitely sets the scene too for I don't know opening up a lot of questions about that night and everybody's actions too so oh, definitely yeah um so we get to November 12th 2022 and just a weird sidebar somebody noticed that the address of the house 1122 is actually the month and the year that these murders were committed. So that's just a creepy thing. It kind of adds to the conspiracy air about this whole crime. Another, if this were a book, let's yeah, pick like, out like... Exactly. Ugh. Do with that what you will yeah. and whatever. Just weird but coincidence. Yeah, very weird coincidence. And so Kaylee had partially moved out of the house at this time, and she was back visiting that weekend for the last time. She had plans to graduate early, and she was working an internship that was going to evolve into a full-time job, and for that job, she was going to be moving to Austin, Texas. So just for this weekend, she was coming back, and she was going to show Maddie, her quote-unquote sister, a new car that she had just bought, and, you know, during that time, she was also likely going to finish moving out, you know, get the remaining stuff out of there, and just wrap everything up that was left at the house. And this also was the last home game for the University of Idaho. And this was the day that Kaylee actually ends up posting this infamous picture that's now just famous uh, across people following this case of all of the victims and the two other roommates who were spared. So the night of November 12th through November 13th morning, this was we're going to sort of get into a timeline for these victims. And just so that you know, 
a lot of these facts are going to come from the probable cause affidavit that was released in this case. But some of the info and the speculation are from other sources too. So we're going to try to just let you know as the audience where we're speculating, what information is coming from where, and what we know for sure versus what's a little bit more, you know, flexible and unknown. Yeah. So we're going to start out with Ethan and Zana. So on that day, on that evening, I guess, Ethan went to his sister's sorority dance. And I don't know, you were in a sorority. So is this like a, a like common thing, common title? Never heard Betty's, of this one. Betty's ball? I'm like, what is a Betty's ball? Right? Never know. heard of Betty's ball. The yeah. only thing I know about Kappa Alpha Theta is that they are famous for creating the Kit Kat bar. What? Which actually stands for Keep in Touch Kappa Alpha Theta. Uh. Fun, right? Interesting. Fun little fact there. Right? But not tonight. No, no. We don't want to go to Kappa Alpha. Well, sad night at Kappa Alpha Theta. So a sad note here, too, is that Ethan was actually a triplet. So he had his sister and he also had a brother. And again, they're all in Greek life. Um, And the three actually attended the University of Idaho together. And they were described as very close. Um, So that last night, they actually all kind of attended this Betty's ball, I believe. And I think it was Ethan was his sister's date and his brother was one of the other friend's dates. Aww. So that is kind of sweet that like, I don't know. They're, they were close. Yeah. Like they're, and their last night, you know, we're all together. Ugh. So after the Betty's ball, Ethan met up with Zana at his fraternity house, Sigma Chi, around 9 p.m. And they were seen there by one of the other roommates. So we do have that verified. Their timeline for the night was actually, I don't know, it's still kind of to me, I I wonder if there's questions because it took a long time, it seems, to kind of verify that when the police were initially searching out details and whatnot. So I do wonder if there's kind of more to their timeline. But they uh, then left the house and walked back to the King Road house. And again, this is kind of what we were saying, how close everything is. It's approximately a three to four minute walk. And actually kind of creepy, the, the King Roadhouse could be seen from the Sigma Chi house. So um, it's creepy, though, because there's some photo. I don't know what event it was, but it was at the Sigma Chi house. And all the guys are just kind of sitting around at tables and whatnot. And there's a picture of Ethan. And behind him, you can see through the window the uh, King Roadhouse. So Ugh. like, he, it, it's just it's super creepy and very ominous. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And that famous 1122 King Road. Yeah. Yeah. So they arrived there that night around 145. So these timelines will definitely, you know, become pretty important here, especially when they arrived home. Yeah. Because, oh, my gosh, I just this is foreshadowing a bit and jumping ahead. But I was just shocked. And I know you were, too, at how it just takes so little time for all oh my God. travel and Oh, it's time is of the essence and it's all very important. So we're going to keep on that timeline. And that does start rolling, like we said, at 1.45 a.m. where they, the Ethan and Zana got home. Kaylee and Maddie, meanwhile, went to a local bar called the Corner Club. And that was located on Main Street in downtown Moscow. They went to this bar from approximately 10.30 p.m. to 1.30 a.m., and around 1.30 a.m., the two girls could actually be seen on video at a food truck on Main Street called Grub Truck getting some late night food. So again, we have this sort of confirmed because it's on video. 
And the truck has a live stream where people can tune in and pay for customers' food. Which just seems kind of weird to me. I don't know. Just an odd thing. Well, like, I just want to, like, sit there and watch the camera. Like, sounds to me like the perfect thing for uh, an overprotective mother checking on college students. Yeah, see if your kid's getting a taco or getting murdered. Um, So something that we think is verified, Kaylee's sister, her actual sister, was the one who thought that the girls might have gone for food that night because it was a super common thing to do and, you know, they would always sort of go for late night grub. So the sister contacted the grub truck owner and located the video footage, which was then passed on to the police. So her speculation was correct. And this footage, unfortunately, was the source of a lot of speculation early on in the case because... It's one of the last known pieces of footage or confirmed sightings of these girls. Yeah. So, of course, you're going to analyze it. Everybody's going to analyze every person in it, every movement, you know, try to determine. Because, of course, you're going to think, oh, the, the killer's in this video somewhere. But, exactly. Yeah. And to that point, there was a man seen behind the girls that appears to have possibly arrived with them. And a lot of people sort of had the thought that he was acting oddly or maybe looked a little odd. And because of that, suspicion sort of built around this guy, this character. But not long after, the police did end up clearing him. And Kaylee's father has also since spoken out and said that he was with the girls making sure they got home safely. So this guy wasn't a nefarious actor. He was just you know, around, sort of helping out, making sure they were okay. So maybe it looked like he was lingering a little too close or creeping on them, but he was really just making sure that they were going to get home safe. And after getting their food, Kaylee and Maddie called a private ride service to pick them up and drive them home. And the two ended up arriving back to King Road around 1.56 a.m. And based on different statements from the friends, Ubers were really uncommon in Moscow. I mean, again, this is like a teeny tiny little town. There's not a ton of people. There's not a lot going on. And frankly, a lot of the different places around town, like we said, were within walking distance anyway. So a lot of the time you really didn't need Ubers. And probably if Ubers existed there, they would get like no business. I was going to say, yeah, like, what are you doing? You're just like sitting there hoping for one ride to come your way. Like, yeah, exactly. But they did end up getting this driver from a fraternity. And it was actually a service that was set up by the Greek life over at the university where a sober fraternity brother would be the available driver that night for other Greek life members. So it's kind of a sober sister, sober brother situation. Yeah. Sober sibling, I guess. Sober sibling, <laughs> exactly. And the driver has also been cleared by the police. So there was no wrongdoing on the part of the driver. He's completely not part of this at all. Yeah. So we're we're moving along with them, but we're also clearing these people that they've come in contact with along the way. So the other two King Road roommates that we talked about... So their names are out there, but we are going to refer to them as DM and BF, just because that's how in the affidavit um, they weren't fully named. So they were both out that night as as well, and they actually arrived home a little later, getting home around 1 a.m. We just want to reiterate that these two roommates were not harmed in the homicide. So this has been a major point of discussion and disagreement with armchair detectives. But many details from their nights have yet to be revealed. So I think there's 
a lot that we don't know and a lot of speculation going on because of that. Um, should I go on, do you think? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because I'm sure there's a lot of bitterness because there's questioning as to why did these two just get spared? Why were they passed over? Why weren't they attacked or targeted? And these other girls were and boy were so brutally murdered. So it makes sense that stuff would still be coming out about these two spared roommates. Yeah, and it's it's sad, too, because a lot have speculated also that they were involved and one of the roommates, I know, paparazzi from, I don't know, one of those tabloids in the UK or whatever was kind of stalking her and taking pictures of her when she was out and about at home. So I think they've really, really been put through it. So the two roommates say that all four victims were home by 2 a.m. and all were asleep or at least in their rooms by 4 a.m., so to really understand this, this night, this this whole situation, again, we have to go back to the house and kind of understand where everybody was. All right. So we're going to start with the first floor. And when we say first floor, again, this house is set up strangely. So first floor is the ground floor. If you look at the house, it's the one that has the cars out in front of it. So this was where the roommate BF was. She was in her room and there was actually another empty bedroom on that floor. So as a note, a six roommate had actually moved out a little while ago. So there was one empty room in the house. On the second floor, we have Zana and Ethan. They were both in Zana's room. And the other roommate, DM, was in the bedroom, on, the other bedroom on the second floor. And I, I believe I read somewhere, too, that DM actually used to live in the basement, the empty basement room. And when the sixth roommate moved out, she moved up. I guess maybe the one on the second floor was better. Who knows? And just another fact, don't know if it means anything, but um, this apparently happened not too long before these murders occurred. So just looking at all the details and, you know, why someone was spared, could they have thought she was still in the basement? You know, like didn't think anybody was in that room. Like, who knows? And then we have the third floor. And on the third floor here, Kaylee had a bedroom and she had not clearly, not fully cleared it out yet. Uh, I believe she did still have a bed in there. Maddie had the other bedroom. So the two of them up there with a the bathroom. And Kaylee and Maddie presumably decided to spend the night together in Maddie's room. But in Kaylee's room, I, I believe at least from what I've read, um, that's where she put her dog Murphy that night. So we didn't talk about good old Murph yet. Oh. Um, but we will talk about him because he does possibly come into play. Um, but this was where he was found the next day. There was a lot of talk about he was found in another room. Didn't Police didn't say where, but I think it has been confirmed that he was in that bedroom. Oh, and don't worry, for those of you dog yeah. lovers out there, Murphy was spared and luckily was just derping around in the bedroom by himself the whole time that this horrible stuff was Poor happening. Thing. So hopefully, we hope, blissfully unaware of what was going on outside. So... Just to touch on what the roommates did once they got home, if we focus on Kaylee and Maddie, we're just going to look into good old Murphy again for a sec, and we won't cover it in this episode, but Murphy might actually be a really important part to solving this mystery of the case. He's a golden doodle, and he's about one year old, so he's quite young, Aww. and Kaylee actually shared custody of Murphy with her ex-boyfriend, Jack Ducur. And so 
little history there, a little bit of a custody battle. And Kaylee and Jack actually dated for like five years. And they had recently broken up when this murder happened. And it was amicable. And they shared custody of Murphy pretty well. They co-parented. And the family described the breakup as just something, you know, they had been together for a very long time. Kaylee was moving away. And the two decided to break up at that point. And if things ended up working out later, then that would have been great. But again, it was sort of a uh, breakup of inconvenience. So that night, after getting back to King Road, Kaylee called Jack six times between 2.26 a.m. and 2.44 a.m. And he didn't pick up at all. So we have a classic situation here of recent breakup doing the multi-call situation. Drunk night, getting emotional. Yeah, making those drunken phone calls. And after that, Maddie, because the two best friends are in the room together, then called Jack three times between 2.44 a.m. and 2.52 a.m. So again, clearly, you're not picking up for me. Maybe you'll pick up for Maddie. Right, right. After that, Kaylee calls Jack one last time at 2.52 a.m. And in one of the calls, Kaylee says something like, we share a dog. Call me back. <laughs> so, you know, clearly she's just trying to get a hold of him, trying to get him on the line and get him to pick up. And it, this doesn't seem like anything crazy. On the grub truck footage from before, the girls were totally drunk. You know, they definitely look impaired. They look inebriated. So these seem just like nothing more than typical late night drunk calls. Yeah, nothing crazy going on with him there. But again, all these people kind of coming in in and out of this situation you have to take a look at. So Kaylee's family also said it was really typical for her to call multiple times just to tell them about something mundane. That's just how she was. She was a multi-caller. It was nothing to worry about. And clearly it wasn't a sign that something urgent was going on. She was just really trying to get a hold of him. And that's how she was. And there was other footage that was released from the night showing Maddie, Kaylee, and the guy who was sort of creeping behind them at the grub truck walking on a street that night. And the audio is definitely muffled. It's hard to hear. But people do think that Maddie says, Kaylee, what did you say to Adam? Kaylee responds, I told him everything. And Adam, this Adam character, is thought to be Jack's friend and former roommate. And the rumor here, or the belief, is that Kaylee wanted to get back together with Jack, seems pretty logical, and that that's what she told Adam. Now, Jack became another suspect in this case because, of course, we're going to cling to every single person. And the boyfriend. The husband did it. Yeah, he's the boyfriend. Like, who knows? And, you know, things supposedly were broken off amicably but who knows we got to look into everything and he was targeted heavy on and you know early on in the case by these armchair detectives Kaylee's sister said that she believes that they called it a night around 3 a.m they sort of gave up on the calling situation and that Kaylee and Maddie both went to bed in Maddie's bed so getting on to Zana and Ethan kind of what they did after coming home that night so this is very interesting to me kind of what happened after the fact but Zana we know received a DoorDash order from Jack in the Box at approximately 4 a.m. 
which I actually have never eaten at a Jack in the Box. Me neither, you? but it's not what I would want for my last meal. No. I'll tell you that for I free. think it was one of the few places that was open, probably. So the DoorDash driver, again, we're just going to go through this as we come along, people, has also been cleared by police. And this is where it's kind of creepy. One of the photos from the house shows the takeout bag with Zana's name on it in the kitchen, which is just very eerie. And just to kind of, again, clarify the layout, the kitchen and living room area are located on the second floor of the house. So with the house, I, I think the second floor is really the living space. And then the other two have just bedrooms and a bathroom. I think the basement may have like the laundry or something. So police believe that Zana was still awake at 4.12 a.m. and she was active on her TikTok app, which this all just becomes so, oh, like nightmarish and so sad. So to understand kind of what happens next, this is some info from the affidavit that comes from one of the surviving roommates, DM. And again, just to place her, she her bedroom was on the second floor like Zana's. So again, we keep talking about the house. I would suggest looking up a map of the house just to kind of better understand. It's no way to understand it. And we actually looked at like a 3D walkthrough of the house because even a map almost doesn't do it justice. Yeah, agreed. Um, It's just it's built very strangely, like you said. Like it looks like a bunch of additions were made to it, but all in like different directions it also almost has like winchester mystery house vibes. yes oh good throwback there <laughs> little reference there but since it's built into a cliff the first floor on one side of the house isn't the first floor on the other that's side a great of the way house. to describe it so yeah. it's just it's very confusing and a lot of things including the potential pathway of the murderer make more sense if you look at a map of the house. So DM's bedroom does not share any walls with Zana's room. It's actually interesting because her bedroom is like totally separate from Zana's. And her room, DM's room, is located off of this small vestibule area right off the kitchen. So to get, if you were coming from Zana's room, you would walk down a small hall. um, You'd round a couple corners passing through that vestibule and going by DM's bedroom on your way into the kitchen. So the kitchen has a large sliding glass door, and this is actually believed to be the entry and exit point for the murderer. So if you kind of think that through, it's almost like a loop around on the um, second floor that the murderer would come in through the kitchen, kind of go past DM's bedroom, and then loop around down a long hall uh, to Zana's bedroom. So DM said that she was asleep in her room on the second floor of the house, And she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. Now, we have a couple paragraphs here that we're going to read from the affidavit because I think they do a really good job of just kind of summing up what happened from there. Yeah, and it's just important because, again, this is one of the only living roommates. She was on that second floor, like we said. Her bedroom is completely separate from Zana's, but it's on the same floor as Zana's. So... She wakes up at 4 a.m. and hears her description of what happens. DM stated that she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. by what she stated sounded like Gonzalves playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which were located on the third floor. A short time later, DM said she heard who she thought was Gonzalves say something to the effect of, quote, there's someone here. Just so eerie. So scary. A review of records obtained from a forensic download of Zana's phone showed this could also have been Kernodal, Zana, 
as her cellular phone indicated she was likely awake and using the TikTok app at approximately 4.12 a.m. DM stated she looked out of her bedroom but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house. So creepy. So really scary. Yeah. DM stated she opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernodal's room. DM then said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, and again, this is so creepy too, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Ugh. Ugh. At approximately 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at a residence immediately to the north- northwest of 1122 King Road picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 4.17 a.m. The security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Kernodal's bedroom. And mm. I have I have looked at photos of this. It This is, I think, something that's so mind-blowing about this case, too. That camera is so close to the to the um, exterior bedroom wall. It, it's like, it's crazy that something like this could happen. And there's so many people, um, not a lot of cameras in the area, but even one of the ones that was, it, it was like right outside of her bedroom. Ugh, yeah, that's horrifying. And just the fact that like, what are security cameras even for if this didn't help? I know. You know? I know. Ugh, it's just so disgusting and disturbing. And I guess at least thank God we have this footage. And yeah. I don't know at this point. So hopefully it can help. Um, anyway, picking back up. DM stated she opened her door for the third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. DM described the figure as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past DM as she stood in a, quote, frozen shock phase, unquote. And we'll get into this and why this is just a weird thing to say the male walked towards the back sliding glass door dm locked herself in her room after seeing the male dm did not state that she recognized the male this leads investigators to believe the murderer left the scene do you want to just do that last little maybe and then i'll the combination of DM's statements to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from BF and DM's phone, and video of a suspect as described below. Wait, maybe we don't want to say described below. Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're right. Um, the combination of DM's statements to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from BF and DM's phone, and other information leads investigators to believe the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. So a couple of points here that I think we have to make. First of all, this happened in 20 minutes. Four people savagely murdered. Savagely stabbed. Yeah. Murdered in cold blood in 25 minutes. It could have been even less than that, too. Like, that's just an estimate. It's crazy. Oh, totally. And we just know it was no earlier, no later than that period. But, like, who knows? It could have been well within that period. Then the weird thing about DM's statement in the affidavit a moment earlier when she said she was in a frozen shock phase. I I think we have to address this. Here's the thing. The house was a party house. There were people milling in and out all the time. Nobody ever even knew half the time who the owners of the house were. (laughs) Very true. So there were constantly strangers 
roaming around in the house. It was 4 a.m., so it was late, but it wasn't crazy late for them. And the police footage collected over different periods of time from just noise complaints at the house show that these kids stayed up late. Oh, yeah. They weren't, like, tucked in and in bed by midnight. Like, 4 a.m. is not so crazy to think that, you know, they'd still be up and partying. So the fact that this roommate, this surviving roommate, indicated that she was in a frozen shock phase just because she saw somebody she didn't recognize in the hall, that would have been an extremely... common occurrence right so it's odd that she would say this and it does kind of make you question you know why is she acting like she was shocked is she trying to cover up for the fact that she didn't go out and investigate that she didn't you know worry when she heard crying or whatever or that she was really worried like i i just don't know what she's trying to do here yeah and i think we probably will get into it even more in the next episode, but she, this, you're totally right on like pointing this out because there's a lot of theories uh, around this as far as why was she saying this? If she was really in this shock state, you know, why could drugs be involved? Like there's a lot um, to it. So I think like you're saying this one phrase is just this short little phrase in the affidavit, but there's so much more. Um, that could be behind it yeah and I think what really kind of shows that too is or makes you question this even more like she was in a shock state again this is around 4 425 at the latest and getting into the next morning this is why people really question it we'll kind of go through this the details here but spoiler she was in that shocked phase but then didn't do anything until the next morning way into the next morning midday so Moving into that morning, the morning of November 13th, um, again, as we were saying here, she described being in a, in a shock state, but we do not have confirmation, at least from like, you know, the affidavit or anything like that, to what happened after she saw this suspect and the big gap when she eventually called police. So the belief is, or at least one of the theories, is that she went to sleep and the other roommate, BF, was never woken up by the crime. So what we know happened next in this whole timeline comes uh, comes with a call to police at 11.58 a.m. So again, this is on midday, the morning of November 13th. And the call is for an unconscious person at the residence. And like, let's just reiterate the fact that this is eight hours after this yeah. murder would have happened. God, that's a good, I didn't even, yeah, that's true. That That's yeah, it's crazy. So, like, this person would have had to go back to sleep, like, sh- ignore whatever was happening or shake off whatever had happened, go back to sleep, and then sleep in. Yeah, exactly. Until noon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, again, this has been something people have latched onto, and I can see why. But they've also latched onto this, and I, I don't know, this doesn't seem too crazy to me. Um, a lot of them have jumped onto the fact that the call was for an unconscious person at the residence. There's some theories out there, you know, that one of the roommates had passed out trying to make a call. And so passerbys saw her and that's what they were calling 911 for. I think also, though, it's probably pretty common that whoever got on the phone to 911 
911 dispatcher is probably asking, are they conscious? Are they breathing? Right. And they probably are saying, no, they're not. So I feel like that's probably a pretty standard kind of like language code or whatever you want to say that goes out to at least give the um, the EMT some indication of what's going on at the scene. Oh, exactly. Well, and I think too, is wasn't there a question of, and again, this might just be for next episode and to sort of put the idea in everybody's head before we get there in more detail next week. But isn't there the idea of like, first of all, what would take this surviving roommate so long to call? Why would they wait so long? Why weren't they afraid, you know, when they heard all these noises? Why were they afraid if they were used to seeing strangers? Like a lot of things don't make sense. And wasn't there the thought that maybe there were sort of drug related activities going on and the roommates maybe didn't want to call the cops if you know there were drug paraphernalia laying around and stuff to that effect yeah that's one of the theories on kind of the delay and then also the fact and I think we will probably get into it more next time but a little teaser here um, that they did call friends apparently or friends came over before police so there is a theory there that you know, the friends were coming over to help take the drugs out. But another, the one theory I found interesting about um, the roommate who was in this shocked state, because like you're saying, it's like she can't be both. She can't be shocked Shocked. and not do something. And then you also question why is she shocked? Because they're used to people coming in and out. But um, the one theory is that she was on some type of drugs that she was not sure whether or not she was hallucinating oh and which actually would make more sense you yeah know? yeah and so she was like uh i don't know if i saw what i just think i saw i'm just gonna go back to bed and then the next morning kind of wakes up and is still worried whether or not it's real or you know goes out and sees what happened and goes down to the other roommate's room the one thing though and now i, I feel like we should look back into the statements that we read from the affidavit that there's definitely something more to this is there's some line that says she started out in her bed first went to bed in her bedroom or something like that kind of indicating that she probably went downstairs and spent the remainder of the night in in the in the other roommate's room and they don't say anything you know you know when you have a comparison sentence you're kind of supposed to be like you know what I mean they're not giving kind of what the comparison is because they're saying she started out but like okay right and then where did she end up well what does that mean or right so i don't know what happened there too because that makes it like even more questions so so we do have some details from the police and also kaylee's father like we said the roommates apparently called friends before calling 911 and this is a major point of interest so we we talked about it a little bit but we definitely will explore it a little bit more in the next episode and um, again, also kind of interesting, police said that the call to 911 was made from one of the surviving roommate's cell phones, but they do not say who specifically made that call. So right. a lot of kind of muddying the waters here with different people and who's doing what. So kind of like we said, and this seems to have been confirmed, but I don't know if it's been fully confirmed. One of the roommates apparently passed out from shock. And the other roommate was apparently like incoherent, trying to describe the situation, but was just kind of, you know, screaming and not making sense. So another student who was there took the phone and either called 911 
or spoke to the dispatcher who was already on the line. We're not really sure. And so, again, kind of what we said, the whole unconscious person situation could be they're just calling about the one roommate who passed out and have no idea of kind of what's going on in the house. Again, there's other rumors and other information kind of that's come out about who actually went in the house, who saw what. Um, and we'll get into it next episode, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a sad scene all around. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is Betsy Boss Podcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.